we call ourselves prisoners. It made me feel pretty bad, you know. Mm-hmm. I just took it as, well, we're just assembling here because we're of Japanese nationality. And that kind of made me feel like, God, I wish a lot of time, I wish it was a little bit different. It was titled Executive Order 9066. Signed by President Roosevelt two months after the attack on Pearl Harbor, the order mandated the relocation of over 100,000 Japanese Americans to internment camps. It was a decision driven by anger, fear, and mistrust of those of Japanese ancestry, even though the vast majority of those forced from their homes were U.S. citizens, like 13-year-old Kenny Harada. His family wound up living within the fenced confines of a hastily constructed camp patrolled by armed guards. As a consequence, Kenny's parents lost the California tomato farm they worked, all the equipment they owned, and most of their personal belongings. It might seem reasonable then that a Japanese-American teenager would have grown up with a searing bitterness for his country, and what was an unjust act. But Kenny Harada, now 92, knows no animosity. He was drafted and served in Korea, sometimes sent in front of the front lines. And after his service, his passion for race car building and driving made him something of a national hot rod legend. This is Kenny Harada's story. Let me take you back to December 7th, 1941. You are 13 years old and you're living... You're living on your dad's farm. Farm, right. In Stockton, California. Stockton, California. Outside of Stockton. Yeah. We call it Stockton, right? And he's worked himself to the bone, raising and harvesting tomatoes for a period of time. He came to the States when he was 15. With my grandfather. So he'd been here for all that time. And then all of a sudden, after Pearl Harbor, you see something in the paper that says what? What are you supposed to do? That it come in the paper and over the radio that if you live between uh, County Road here and County Road there and and uh, say State Road here and whatever, you will report to the the fairgrounds in such and such a day and bring only what you can carry. Now these are Japanese Americans. Japanese. This is addressed. Amer- anybody that Japanese nationality. My parents were from J- born in Japan. And they didn't get uh, their citizenship paper till much later, but uh, but they of, were U.S. citizens. They eventually became citizens. Right. I I think I'm not sure. They okay. talked about it a lot. But you were because you, I were, was born you were born there. here. Well, what we what it is, is is we had what we call a dual citizenship. Our parents are from Japan, born in Japan. We were born in the United States, and we're citizens of Japan and citizens of the United States, dual citizenship. What did your folks think of that when they saw the notification in the paper that you had to bring everything? My dad was shocked, but not really surprised. When he knew that uh, Pearl Harbor got attacked by Japan, he knew there was something wrong. You know, he, he One of the first things he said after he kind of called out was, you look on the map, a little place like Japan want to take on a big place like the United States. There's something wrong here, you know. And sure enough, he eventually proved himself right because, you know, 
the United States just overwhelmed Japan. Yeah. So you and your family, and this is just, it's more than you and your mom and your dad. It's uncles who are involved too. Yeah. You all go to the appointed parade ground and you report. Do you remember that day? I can't really say I remember other than uh, one of the things was, but the rule was bring only what you can carry. And me being, I didn't, I didn't care to take any toys, but I wanted to bring a lot of reading material and stuff. And no, my dad said, no, clothes, bring your clothes, because we are probably being incarcerated. Did you have any idea where you were going to be sent? No, no idea whatsoever. We had to report to the, to the Sound King, that was the Sound King County, Sound King County Fairgrounds. That's where they had the county fair and all that. Was there any anger expressed by your, your folks? No, not at all. Why is that? Well, I think my, my dad was able to, he understood what was going on. He said the United States is, is trying to protect the United States so that the Japan uh, Air Force don't come over California and, you know, the West Coast. And so he expected something like that to happen. And Japan is, uh, United States worried about the people in the United States are still Japanese citizens. Because like at that time, my mother and father were still Japanese citizens. You don't know when propaganda was going on. You don't know if any of the, the Japanese that lived in the United States were sent there. So, so he said the government of the United States is doing what they feel is necessary to protect the country. So he accepted it okay. And you took a cue from him. You said, okay, I guess oh, if yeah. my dad is going to think We had that no way. choice. You know, we were kids, still kids. And wherever the parents said, go here, go there, we went. Did you all? Did you experience any animosity expressed toward Japanese Americans when you were a teen? Little bit in school, very little. But I think in school, they the school kids got it from probably their parents. You know what they heard their parents talking about. You know about how bad Japan, which is true. How bad did Japan act? They shouldn't have never done that. See, and they probably got it from their parents. People were pretty good to me when I was going to school. A couple of incidents, you know, got in one fist fight, you know, but uh, that was the only one I got into. <laughs> and you did all right in that fist fight. Oh, yeah, too. oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they did bust up my bicycle, so I had to push it home, you yeah, know, but yeah, yeah that's okay. And when, so when you're at the fairground and you've got everything you can carry, do you have it in suitcases? Do you have it in bags? What are you taking with suitcases, you? Suitcases, right. Suitcases. Suitcases. And we didn't have enough suitcase, you know. When they said, bring all you can carry, well, my dad probably tried to carry three or four suitcases by himself, you know, so he carried two and then two more. My mother carried, my two sisters carried suitcase. My oldest sister was already married, so she was kind of on her own on her own with her husband. And being newlywed, they didn't have that much to worry about, you know. Mm -hmm. Suitcase full of clothes, and and uh, my younger sister, well, uh, my younger of the two sisters, and I, you know, we helped my mother and father. The biggest thing was my father trying to get rid of a lot of the equipment from the farm, and and uh, people would want to steal it from him, or I call it stealing, give him 
uh, on a, on a three thousand dollar piece of equipment. They want to give them like a hundred dollars, you know. Figuring well, but hardly any of it got sold because the one of the neighbors with a Caucasian was going to take care, and the tomatoes were ready to plant the the small tomatoes, you know, to plant in the field. So it was all ready to do. So my dad had asked the band, "Would you plant it?" Then you know you keep the proceeds, just pay my rate, pay, pay my mortgage plan, and then uh, keep the farm going. And and uh, he didn't do that though. Well, I think he might have tried, but uh, he might have got pressure. See. Do you think your dad realized that he was going to lose a lot of equipment that he had invested time and oh, effort yeah. and money I, into? I'm, I'm sure he he thought about it. Do you think there were moments when? Although you may not have seen this, your dad got angry with the whole situation, or was he all along accepting of this fate? Well, he was disappointed, but he didn't show it. I think he was trying to keep us from. If he got angry and and start mouthing off or something, we might have picked it up from him. And but uh, he did not show it at all. He was he was a great dad. He was really a great dad. So all of you board a train, right? You're on a train and you're bound for Arizona, but you, you don't know where you're going. We don't know where we're going, no. I don't remember if they put us on a train or if they took army army trucks, but I think it was on a train to Turlock, California. See, Turlock was an assembly center. There were people from other towns that showed up in Turlock, enough to put so many people in the internment camps and like maybe a block at a time. We were the first ones in that internment camp, block three. Block one was a hospital. Block two was an empty lot. Block three was the first one, and we were in block three, see. These are all new, hastily constructed buildings. I mean hastily, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But you you leave Turlock, and you end up in Arizona. Right, right, right. What What was that experience like in Arizona? We got there, and the train stopped, and we got off the train, and there was army trucks. There were little steps that went up, and they put so many people by the families into the back of the truck, and we just had to sit there. The truck was covered like that, you know. Mm-hmm. And then uh, when soon they got a truck full, the driver took off, and, and uh, we didn't even know where we were going or what we were going to do. We just rode. Then they come into the internment camps, and and they stop wherever they're supposed to stop. It's only the driver. And then uh, there's people waiting for us from the Army, put a stepladder down there, and we all got off and waited for them. By that time, you know, I was just curious, looking around. And I guess they must have told our parents to follow them and go there, and we got The Army barracks were, they were like, I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think they were like, uh, Five units. The one in the middle was for the ones that had children. That was the biggest. Do you remember ever being afraid? No, never. Never. I was curious to what's going to happen, but not really. Didn't have time to be afraid. There was, when you have a lot of people in the same situation, you know, you know that they're not going to shoot everybody, right? There's too many people to shoot. 
So they, we knew that there's going to be something different, you know. Except the camp, as you told me earlier, had barbed wire around oh, yeah. the outside. So we knew we were prisoners, but... Except they told you it was there for your protection. Yeah. Eventually they told us it was for our protection, and then this JCL group asked the government, well, how come all the machine guns were pointed inward instead of outward? And, and uh, that's when... The JCL, Japanese American Citizen League, was trying to get some money back. See, us farmers, my dad was a farmer, and and I don't, I, I don't know what he really lost in dollar-wise. See, you know, but then there are a lot of Japanese people from Japan that rented in in the city of Stockton. Uh, it was like a Japanese neighborhood. That section of of Stockton, and they had people that owned little restaurants, little stores, and they're all leasing them because you go to any of them downtown and somebody owns that big building, that long building, and you lease one section of that for your own business. And they lost all of that. And and uh, whoever took over, what well, might have been a Caucasian or Mexico or wherever, took over, they might have started a restaurant, but they might have started anything else, see. Well, they're not going to kick them out to let the original Japanese people back in again because that's not the way it works, I guess, you know. Would you describe a typical day for you in the internment camp? Well, we get up in the morning, you know, uh, it was normal. We had to go to school, see. And we had to get up in the morning and go to the mess hall and uh, have our breakfast, which is consistent of, we, we never got pancakes. You know, we got, a lot of time we got cereal. And then uh, off to school. School was a family-sized room, a little bit bigger maybe. And they had homemade tables and the benches. And the teacher could be a teacher that used to be a teacher as a, second-generation Japanese, or they might have a Caucasian teacher. Did you, were, were they multi-grades, so you would be in class with some 12-year-olds, 10-year-olds? No, no, no. All your age? All my age, all my class age. And what were the classes like? Well, just a group of, at that time, say if I was 15 years old, be a group of 15-year-old, male and female, and the teacher was, it was like another, another going to school in the U.S., right? And you kind of liked it because you had an audience of friends. Oh, yeah. Oh, we had playmates like crazy. And, and that's something you didn't necessarily have on the farm. No, I had to go back and go home after school and ride my bicycle home. And I used to go raid the refrigerator. Mom always had some kind of a sandwich that I could make, you know, and me, I'm a ketchup lover. Even now, I ketchup is my favorite food. I mean, if my mother did not have any leftover meat or rice or something for for me to munch on, then I would make me a ketchup sandwich. <laughs> I love ketchup, even now. You notice I ordered yeah, ketchup, yeah. right? Ketchup sandwich. It's all I. It's all it took. You know? That's good. Life happens. That's sli- all right. Two slices of bread with a, a little ketchup, ketchup yeah. in the middle. And, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
When you're in the camp, did you ever get to a point where you said, how long is this going to go on? And what's next? And why are they doing this? Was there kind of a building feeling that this is not right? We're being kept here? It was It was not until, not until that first, it was like nobody really worried about getting out because they just got in, you know. But after the uh, older, not the old people, but the seniors, uh, when I say seniors, I'm talking about school seniors that just graduated and college people, they were always worried about trying to get out and make themselves better people education-wise, you know. And we never thought about it as kids, but you know, I wasn't a kid anymore, but it's still, I got I got about four more years, five more years of school to go to, you know, so never dawned on me that way about, you know, am I happy or not happy? I was happy at, in those camps because we're all in the same boat, you know. So you're there for two years before you leave the internment camp, right. and what are the conditions when you leave? What are you offered? I think, see now, Cleveland, Ohio had a, uh, I forgot what they called it at that time. Uh, it was a, it was a, a large home, house that was built for a family. You could not have a job, but still go to Cleveland and stay in that home, you know, and look for a job, see. So it's, a, it's like a relocation center where you have a it's, job right, opportunity. Right, right, right. Oh, yeah. Well, what happened for you? Did you wake up some morning and people came in to you and said, Kenny, you can leave. We're going to give you some money and you can take a train and no, take we, off? No, we found out by the time I got ready to leave, I mean, there was a lot of older people that had left already. And I was told what you have to do to leave was just go to the administration building and tell them you would not to leave to go to whatever town. I wanted to go to Cleveland because my two sisters were already there. They gave you some money to make the trip? They gave us 50 bucks, but they paid for all the tickets. All right, so why was there this change in mood? And you basically only have to go in and say, I'd like to leave now. What happened in the interim that allowed that to take place? Well, I'm not really sure. It's been so long ago, I can't really tell you what sequence I had to go through to leave the camp, but I know I had to sign some papers. Okay. And, and, and any- either, I don't know if my folks had to sign papers now because I was like a junior in high school. So in any case, they didn't perceive you as a threat. You're allowed to go. Yeah. And well, you were yeah. never a threat anyway, but you're, yeah. <laughs> you're allowed to go. So what lessons did you learn from that experience? You have to accept whatever is. We cannot say, I don't want to do this, I don't want to do this. We had to get it done. you got to do what they tell you to do because we call ourselves prisoners. At that point, whenever we call, whenever I thought I was a prisoner there, it made me feel pretty bad, you know. Mm-hmm. I just took it as, well, we're just assembling here because we're of Japanese nationality. And that kind of made me feel like, God, I wish a lot of time, I wish it was a little bit different. Ultimately, down the road, reparations come for the Japanese-Americans who are held. And you were a recipient of that, I think, right? My dad had passed away, so he got nothing. But if, if you were a baby in camp, if you were born in camp, 
and you grew up somewhere else, but if you're born there and, sp and spend a few days there, I think they got the money too. Right. See, right? Okay. It was like twenty thousand dollars or something. I think that was what it was. The representatives from for the Japanese Americans and the Japanese people, they went to Washington and then they tried to explain to them what what they thought that the United States should have never incarcerated all the Japanese people on the West Coast, you know. And then, yeah, they finally succeeded, and uh, that's when they said, well, we, we're trying to protect you people, right? And that's when they said, oh, yeah, we're trying to protect us with a machine gun pointing at us, you know. that I, I heard that, and I started laughing, and I said, you know. So. Well, when you look back on it now, um, and, and we should remind everyone that your dad lost a lot. You said yeah. you don't oh, know yeah. the dollar oh, amount, yeah. but he lost his land, he lost his tractors, he lost all kinds oh, of stuff. Oh, yeah. So that had to be a fairly sizable loss. He was accepting of the decision to put you all in an internment camp. But now, when you look back on the whole episode, what do you think of it? I would never want to do that again, but then I'm glad I did that because I had a lot of experience. It's like the Army. You know, I had a lot of experience in the Army, a lot of experience overseas, but I, know, I don't want to go through that anymore, you know. At my age, you think different, right? Mm -hmm. Even 20 years ago, I would think different. But when you're a kid, sometimes you say, oh, man, I, my neighbor's a playmate, and that guy down the street's a playmate, and we had a lot of fun because I had tons of playmates, you know. But now it'd be a whole different story, you know. Yeah. Speaking of yeah. the Army, you are ready to be drafted, I think, when you were a senior in high school? Yeah, yeah. This yeah. was 1946. 46. So yeah. the war is over with. And what do you ask the Army? war was over with, but then they were they were still drafting. I think a lot of the drafting was for... Occupation forces. Cons yeah, yeah. yeah. I was a senior in high school. I turned the draft age in January 29th, 1946. And then I got my draft notice, see. Well, that was then right after my birthday, and my birthday is the end of January 29th, so I must have got it in about middle of February. So I went to the draft board, and I said, look, I said, in a couple more months, two or three more months, I'll get my graduation diploma if you'll defer me till then, I will go to the Army just as soon as I get my diploma. So they said, well, you are deferred. Well, so, okay. Then, a month or so later, they quit drafting at all. So I thought, wow, I dodged a bullet there, see? And I thought nothing of it till uh, all of a sudden, <clears throat> the, it will go from then till 1950. When the Korean War Korean broke War. out, right? right. See, then I got my draft notice, and I said, God, they must put my name on the top of the list because here I am going to Korea, you know. Did you know what you would be doing over there? You were 101st Airborne? Yeah, 101st Airborne Infantry Division. See. Okay. Everybody, you tell about 101st Airborne, and they'll say, well, you're a parachuter. Yeah. I said, no. Infantry. Infantry. And what was your job? You were, uh, you were Mr. Fix-It. We were in a maintenance group. That means if there's a generator that don't work, you know, one of those portable generators that don't work, uh, whatever it takes for good mechanics and maintenance, why, we had to fix. They, 
looked at my uh, paperwork and found out that I, were, I had experience in a garage as a mechanic, you know. So I thought, well, this is pretty nice. I'm stationed back here, and uh, but then had to go in a truck and go all the way up to past the front line just to see what's going on, see. Yeah, you're not living in the lap of luxury here, right? You're you're up beyond the oh, front yeah. lines because well, we stuff... live behind, but then we have to go up the front. Then we hear mortars going off way down, maybe a mile away. You know, we took machine gun training with a 50 caliber shooting targets with the machine gun, just in case we need to do that. You know, but uh, basically, I was able to. We were able to sleep in our tent at nighttime. And I thought I thought we got a pretty good break. Mm-hmm. Instead of being in the infantry, sleeping in a foxhole, you know, in the rain, I said I never had to do that. And in the cold, it was yeah, so cold, the cold there. Korea can get cold. Yeah. Did you have any close calls? No. The only one I've seen was when a mortar come in, and the mortar would hit every spray from 75 to 100 yards away. And the, our captain says, if that thing lands 100 yards away, you could bet your ass it's going to be close to the next one. I remember you saying that one of your superior officers said to you that no broken generator is worth losing your life. Oh, yeah. But our captain, Yeah. he says, when the mortar comes in, if it lands 100 yards away from you, he says, you could bet the next one's going to be awful close. And he says, not worth staying, whatever mm-hmm. it is. There's no equipment out there worth your losing your life over, right? I didn't like being in Korea because Korea at that time was nothing, hmm. absolutely nothing. Did you wonder sometimes why are we here doing this? Yeah, why are we doing this? Well, it was explained to us North Korea was a communistic country, right? And if we let this happen, then South Korea will become a communistic country. Then the whole country of Korea might turn out to be communistic. So when you came home, you were not married when you went over to Korea? Yeah, I got married before I went over. Oh, you did. Okay. I was going with my wife for about two years, and, and I had heard from somebody that if you're a married soldier... Your wife gets an allotment check every year, see, oh, every month. Okay. So I got my draft notice, and I told my wife, I said, I understand if I got if we were married that you'd get an allotment check every month. So I said, <laughs> uh, you want to get married? She says, okay, <laughs> just like that. You know? True romance. Yeah. <laughs> so you and Chio have been married for how many years? We, we got married in 1950. But the week I got my draft notice, we got married. It was in the next couple months see so 1950 70 years yeah wow coming up on 71 yeah congratulations that's a long time that is a long time so you settle in Lowell Indiana and any sort of a profile of Kenny Harada would not be complete without the words hot rod (laughs) yeah you got into cars big time didn't you well, what brought that on? You were doing a lot of mechanic stuff before. Well, see, uh, what happened when I was growing up, my oldest sister used to hang, her boyfriend that she eventually married used to hang around at a gas station. And there's a lot about three or four street machines that got hopped up motors, right? They basically ro- drove the streets with them. Then at night, uh, they'd go 
we'd go up to a local drive-in and look for somebody that run a race me for city block for 10 bucks so I could buy gasoline, you know? Mm-hmm. That's, that's about how it was, racing on the streets. So you started uh, Lowell Auto Body? And yeah, I worked been, in the body shop, see. How long that? You've had that for how many years now? You that started body in 56? I moved here in 1956. So you've been a fixture fixing cars. We are the we are the fourth oldest family-owned business in Lowell, Indiana, right now. At some point in time, you really get involved in racing. In 2013, because of all you've done, you were elected to the Hot Rod Hall of Fame. Yeah, which was a nice honor. Yeah, when I lived in uh, Cleveland. I used to hang around with the guys that uh, were hopping up cars, streetcars, right? And then I finally said, well, I want to go faster. Then when I got back from the Army, Akron, Ohio, which is where Derby Down is, behind Derby Down, there's that blacktop road. On Sunday, they block the ends off, and they have official drag racing. With that in mind, I built my 32 uh, three-window coupe with the big Oldsmobile motor in it, see. In Cleveland, I built a Model A Roadster, and that thing run pretty good, you know. So cars have been your life, haven't they? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So is it is it fair to say that you've been in dozens and dozens of races? Oh, wow, yeah. Dozens and dozens a year, every year. How many, how many trophies do you have? They were little trophies. I get to give them away. <laughs> about honor flight and your experience on that trip you know that was one of the nicest trips i went to but what was more impressive than anything was the general public when we got on the plane the people you can't believe the people lined up to see us get on the plane you know each one of us was given a person to push our wheelchair wheelchair mm-hmm. and I was given a uh, a lady was uh, a young lady she was uh, very polite very and I took a camera and start taking pictures she said no she said you got to see where, where you're going so she said put your camera away she had her own camera mm-hmm. she took picture after picture and at about uh I would say a month after I got home, I got a stack of pictures that thick from her. You know? But one of the things that you really liked the most were strangers who came up to you to shake your hand. Oh, yeah. And oh, thank yeah. you. I, the, the people, wherever you went, the people thank you for going to the country and being in the service and, and coming back. You, know, uh, you didn't expect that, did you? Absolutely not, you know. Even now, you'd be surprised how many people say thank you for your service, you know. And I don't wear this hat to be just trying to get something for nothing or thank you, but, yeah. you know, let them know that I'm not Chinese, right? That I've served in the Korea War, so don't shoot at me or don't. <laughs> <laughs> Kenny, thanks. This has been a joy talking to you. Yeah. You I left, enjoyed you, this. I enjoyed this. You we had lunch together, and yeah. I, I enjoyed this. If you ever get up this way again, 
Give me a call. Huh? I'll do. buy. I'll buy all the lunches you could have. <laughs> we'll do. Thanks, Kenny. Yeah. A postscript on the internment issue. In December 1944, the Supreme Court, in a two-part ruling, found that while the eviction of Japanese Americans from their predominantly West Coast homes was a lawful matter of military necessity, incarcerating them without just cause was unconstitutional. They were allowed to return to their homes, those who still had homes to return to. We hope you found today's Honor, Thank, Inspire episode to be moving and meaningful. If you did, please consider sharing this podcast and make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The impact Honor Flight Chicago has on the lives of our veterans and their families is made possible by the generosity of our donors. To support our mission to find our veteran application, to volunteer, or simply for more information, please visit us at honorflightchicago.org.